You're listening to Booth One. Well, you found Booth One on your podcast dial, everyone, your source for the best and lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. As always, Gary Zabinski, your host here, and returning Yay. to the co-host chair is my friend Frank Taranjo. How He's you been, back. Frank? He's back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been great. I've been really good. You were in, once again, in a foreign country. I was. I was globetrotting again. Why don't you give us a, a little thumbnail sketch of where you went, what you did, and uh, how you survived? Well, this time it was Greece, and it was Athens, and then a week in Santorini. Nice. I had been to Santorini before. You know, people kind of make fun of cruises because they only spend one day in various places. But what I like about cruises is it gives you a taste of a bunch of different things. And then if you like something, you can always go back to it. And so five, six years ago, we were on a cruise, stopped at Santorini. I thought, ooh, this is a place I would like to go to sometime. And so uh, a friend of mine called me and said, "Um, listen, I just rented a villa in Santorini. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> okay. villa? A whole villa? Uh, well, it was an old winery oh. that they've turned into, and you get it through Airbnb. Sure. But, you know, they call them villas there. And it was in, I don't know if people know what Santorini looks like, but it's a crescent. And in the middle is Fira, which is the main town, but then at the top is Oya, O-I-A. Oh. And it's this wonderful, very old world community where you're you I was very happy to come home and walk on level steps and level ground because it was all crooked and I'm surprised I didn't well, break it's, a hip. Well, it's old. It's very old. It's very old. But then there's also a beautiful shopping area with very high-end stores, you know, maybe almost a mile of like marble walkway and it's really beautiful. We ate a lot of Greek food or as they call it, food. Um, <laughs> oldest Joe in the world, but and we did this one thing where we had to take a speedboat into a hidden cove and they brought out the fresh catch of the day at this restaurant, and they said, would you like the red snapper or this or that? And I ordered the barracuda because I could. (laughs) And who gets to order barracuda? Really? So that was fun. Beautiful weather, you know, 80 degrees, sunny, and then I come home to snow. Yeah. And then we went to Athens, spent three days in Athens, and went up uh, on the in the Acropolis. And you've um, been to Athens before, but only yeah, just for briefly. Just again that one day thing on the same cruise, and it was July, and it was nine million degrees, mm. and it was packed. In order to go to the Acropolis, you had to stand for like That's an why hour. That's why they wear togas. <laughs> That's right, yeah, All those really. years, yeah. Yeah. We had to stand for an hour in like over 100 degree weather just in order to get into the Acropolis, whereas this time, because it was October's 80 degrees and we walked right in. Maybe. Well, I'm jealous. I would love to go to Greece someday. Well, it's very possible to do. It just takes a while to get there. I had to fly from Chicago to Newark and then Newark to Athens, then Athens to Santorini. So... It's, oh, you have to have a good a long, iPad with movies. It's a long day. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it is a long day. Well, Frank, are you as excited about today's episode as I am? I am. This is episode 103. Woo. And those dulcet tones you heard introducing our Booth One broadcast belong to one of the giants of Chicago absolutely. theater. Absolutely. 
actor, director, artistic director, producer, car collector. Oh, didn't know that. Please welcome to the booth the great Dennis Zacek. Hi, Dennis. How are you today? I'm I'm great. I've got a cold, but I'm here, <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, you you look fantastic. Why, well, thank you. You don't look like you're ill in any way whatsoever. Bless your heart. Must be the makeup. Yes. <laughs> no. No makeup. <laughs> I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit more about you for those that possibly could be unfamiliar with your work. Uh, Dennis Zacek, PhD, is Artistic Director Emeritus of Victory Gardens Theater, where he was the Artistic Director for 34 years. Yes, one year longer than the age of Christ. (laughs) That's a good way to look at it. (laughs) He's also full Professor Emeritus of Theater at Loyola University, has directed more than 250 productions in his career, and has received numerous awards, including the 2011 Association for Theater and Higher Education Ellen Stewart Award for Career Achievement in Professional Theater. Mm -hmm. The 2001 Regional Theater Tony Award. You remember this, right? I do remember that. I do. Presented to Victory Gardens, and uh, you were on stage uh, at the Tony Awards at Radio City. Yes, uh, yes. With your lovely wife. And, and Sandy Shinner. And Sandy Shinner. Accepting that award, that was just one of the great moments of Tony history and well, Tony Well, great Lord. for Chicago theater. I remember being so excited. Yeah. Thank you so much. And also the 2014 League of Chicago Theater's Artistic Leadership Award, the 2005 Jeff Award for Distinguished Achievement. By the way, Victory Gardens is one of five Chicago theaters, Frank, to be so recognized with a regional theater Tony oh, Award. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he is known familiarly to his friends and colleagues as Dr. Z. So <laughs> we can refer to him that as Dr. That, Z. Okay. As we'd like. Dennis, most recently, I've been reading a book called The Zacek Tapes. Yes. It sounds like some sort of conspiracy theory, (laughs) um, but it actually is a series of interviews that you did with Mary Felice. Correct. And you taped them and transcribed them. It's really a history of your career and somewhat of your life. It's a fascinating read. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and how you arrived at the center of the revolution of Chicago theater. I realize that's a very, very long question. But first off, I'm, I'm interested in where you grew up, where you were born. I grew up in uh, an area that was known as Pilsen when I was a boy. It's now the little village, or La Bajita, as the uh, Mexican-Americans call it. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, Assumption BVM, which was a Catholic grammar school. Believe it or not, four rooms. There were five nuns. (laughs) You had one for first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Seventh and eighth was the principal, and the fifth nun was a cook. And then I went to St. Rita with my friend Stuart Dybeck, a couple years apart, but we were both at St. Rita. And then I went to DePaul, where I majored in speech and drama, and I met my first Shavian father, a guy named Al Martin. You talk about Shavian fathers in uh, the Zacek tapes. Shavian fathers, I guess, is another word for mentors. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's based on a theory that George Bernard Shaw had that if you were very fortunate, you not only had your blood father, but you had as many as three 
Shavian fathers guiding you along the way. I was working on a um, poem by uh, Carl Sandburg called Chicago. I presented it in class, and I got an A, and the class loved it, and Al Martin loved it, and he asked me to be in a show, sort of a variety presentation. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, you know, heady moment. And then he said, why don't you come over to my studio on Friday, and we'll touch it up. Well, I went in on Friday, and he took me apart put me back together again. This is the Carl Sandburg poem that you yeah. were going to recite. <laughs> yes, and uh, I remember vividly to this day walking the streets of my neighborhood in the rain, talking to myself, saying, you know, how could I have ever been so naive, so stupid as to think I was ready for this? So on Monday morning, I went to see Al Martin, and I said, I want to apologize for taking up uh, all your time, and I I'm sorry that uh, uh, there was this misunderstanding because I'm obviously not ready. And he gave me the time-out sign, and he said, the reason I gave you two hours of my life was because I think you're worth it. Wow. And if you are willing, I think you have the capacity to be an artist, but it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work. And so I was off and running. That was my first uh -huh. Shavian father. Then when I left DePaul, where I was a John Stein scholar, uh, which was given to the most outstanding student going from junior to senior year, like Michael Maggio was also a John Stein scholar. I went to Northwestern, got an MA, and got a PhD. But before I uh, managed to get the PhD, I had to get accepted into the program and have an advisor. So I went to Lee Mitchell, and I said... Uh, I'm a PhD candidate, and I'd like to have you as my advisor. And he said, you are a postgraduate student, and you will not be a candidate until you pass three days of exams and have written at least one chapter of your dissertation. And I said, nevertheless, <laughs> I would like to have you as my advisor. He said, okay, go go to the library and look up every title ever written in the field of theater and um, come back and report to me with a proposed title. Were these dissertation titles? Yes. So yeah. you had, that, had, that's quite the research assignment. Yes, <laughs> but believe it or not, that was Friday, and I went to the library. I stayed until closing. I uh, went back on Saturday early. I stayed until closing. I went back on Sunday early. I stayed until closing. And on Monday, I met with Lee Mitchell and I said, I have checked every title over the weekend and I have a proposed title, which was The Acting Techniques of Edwin Booth. And he said, wait a minute. You checked out every title ever written during these three days? I said, yes, sir. And he said, and did you enjoy it? 
and I was off and running again. Wow. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. You should have just Googled it. <laughs> now, you think of today, the students, how they, what we had to do back that, then. That word That's did right. not now even just, exist. No, now they That's type correct. it in and print we're, it out, and it takes five minutes. And we're, we're talking at this point about the, what, mid to late 60s? I, see. I got my, uh, my PhD in 69 when I was 29 years old. Mm. And then time passed, and I did various things, and I was about 50 years old, and I was in New York. I was directing uh, Jim Sherman's uh, Bo Jest, and I just started to think about how fortunate I was and the fact that I had two Shavian fathers, and I thought that was, that was pretty good. And it turns out that my commercial producer was a guy named Arthur Cantor, and he called me up. Uh, one morning when I was at the Edison Hotel and said, you know, I've been reading your contract, and according to your contract, you can have your name listed twice on the title page as director and as artistic director. And then he said, but listen, kiddo. And I thought, listen, kiddo. <laughs> So I was 50 years old. And Arthur Cantor was, <laughs> he, was he must the, have been in his 70s by yes, then. Yes, he was the third. And, and he said, you know, I think it's better to let them discover you. Don't, don't wave your flag too much on this occasion. And so uh, until he died, it was listen kiddo for me. <laughs> and he gave me a, a lot of guidance and a lot of advice. I think, unfortunately, well, I know it was unfortunate. I never really was able to express my appreciation to L. Martin, who died very young. I did a little bit more with Lee Mitchell, but I sure did a lot of appreciation with Arthur Cantor. When you uh, started your career, your professional career, after, I assume, your Ph.D., or maybe alongside when you were getting your Ph.D., did you start off as an actor? I did. I did. The one thing that is um, kind of hard to believe, uh, but it has a great deal to do with luck, maybe a, a little bit to do with talent as well, but I have not had what we call a straight job since 1969. Wow. I have acted, I have directed, I have produced, I have taught, I have designed, but I've never been seen behind the steering wheel of a taxi cab. <laughs> and even though I know that forks go on the left, I have never uh, had um, the position of waiter in uh -huh. a restaurant. Uh -huh. What was so, your last straight job? It was probably teaching, but it wasn't teaching theater. It was at uh, the General Wood Boys Club, where I, I ran a program called Western Trails, uh -huh. where we did outdoor arts and crafts. I see. But mm. since then, you've since '69 a blessed mm -hmm. life in the theater. Yes, constant, constant work. Not many can say that. No. <laughs> Tell me about the name Victory Gardens. It's, a, it's an interesting name for a theater company. Victory Gardens was actually started by eight individual artists. They were trying to figure out what to call themselves. And Warren Casey, who was co-author of Grease, was a guy with a very dry wit. 
And he suggested that they call themselves Eight Great Tomatoes in a Can. <laughs> and, and of course, they found that amusing and dismissed it, but then started to free associate about the idea of world premiere work and nurturing Chicago talent. And out of that, they thought about the effort that occurred in World War II, where people were encouraged to grow their own fruits and vegetables in support of the war effort. And they had these things that were known as Victory Gardens. Right. So it seemed to be an appropriate name. And that's what we were doing. As a matter of yeah. fact, the early brochures have a lot of fruits and vegetables <laughs> depicted. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that we were growing our own, um, our own Chicago-based talent, which was uh, quite unique. And, of course, uh, we were starting from zero. There were a handful of people that were playwrights. Uh, But what we did was continue to work and continue to search, and we found more and more writers and more and more actors and more and more directors. And uh, so it it has always been a a Chicago theater first. And what year did it start? 1974. And I came on as uh, artistic director in 77. There is a man whose name is Alan Turner. He was at that time a young philanthropic figure. He's now a mature philanthropic (laughs) figure. I was working as spokesman for the eight. I was producer. I was trying to get the other seven to agree on anything. And it was an (laughs) arduous task. These are the other seven ensemble members. Yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Alan Turner eventually said to me, he said, you know, I cannot find any theater in the United States that has eight artistic directors. There must be a reason for that. And I think the best thing is to have one person. So he said, if you will agree to be artistic director, I will help you develop a board because we didn't have a board of directors. And he said, I'll be your first president. And I said, well, that sounds great, but what about the other seven? I don't know if you know Alan Turner, but Alan Turner is an attorney who has not been in court maybe for 50 years because he always knows the lay of the land. And I said, what about the other seven? And he said, don't worry, they'll welcome it. And they did. To my surprise, I became artistic director. Mm-hmm. For 34 years. 34 years. Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> and this was at a time when there were not that, you know, there were not 200 no, theaters in Chicago. There right. were, there right. were a handful. We uh, used to do shows, uh, seven shows a week. And one of our stage managers, Tommy Biscato, said, you know, why are we doing this when people only come on the weekend? Well, we were doing it so that we could provide a little more money for the artists, the actors. The actors, yeah. What we also didn't realize was that the longer we did it, the more people were inclined to come on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, as well as Mm -hmm. Saturday and Sunday. So uh, little by little, we became uh, part of the, uh, the establishment. You talk in your book a little bit about what makes a great play or a great production of a play, and you reference something called the three E's. 
let me give you a little background on that. I was given the opportunity to interview uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Tribune. Longtime yeah, critic long for the Tribune. Yeah. And great supporter. Great advocate of Chicago Absolutely. theater. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And my friend, Michael Billington, from The Guardian. He's my friend because he never reviewed anything I did, so there was no conflict of interest. I remember asking the first question, which was, what gives you two guys the right to sit in judgment of all these artists? What, what are your qualifications? What entitles you to do it? And Richard Christensen was sort of shocked. <laughs> but Michael Billington said, absolutely nothing. There's nothing that I can give you that shows my qualifications. But somebody has to do it. Somebody has mm-hmm. to be the referee. And then we went on, and um, I asked him what he thought made a great play. I asked them both, but it was Billington who gave me the answer. And he didn't have the source, but the answer was uh, the three E's. The first E is entertainment. And that doesn't mean a laugh riot. It means holding your interest Mm -hmm. for two hours traffic on the stage. Mm -hmm. The second is enlightenment, Mm -hmm. giving you an opportunity to think about something or some event or some person in a new way, in a way that you've never thought of before. And the third, which is rare and usually only an instant, but it's a a moment of ecstasy. Mm. Since then... David Mamet, who doesn't quite say the three E's specifically, but he alludes to them, and he basically says that unless you have these elements, what you're doing is simply adding to the loneliness of the audience. Oh, wow. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm lonely enough, so I I try to do plays that have the three E's. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. How often do you think you've been successful at doing that? Well, I'm not sure how often, but I, I certainly I try to do it all the time. And I certainly made an effort to do it with my 12 and then 14 ensemble playwrights. I remember being at the uh, Cleveland Playhouse once as a guest artist, and the dramaturg, literary manager, dramaturg, gave me a play to read, and I... I read it, and he said, what do you think? I said, well, it's, it's very entertaining, but I don't think I learned anything new. And he said, well, you want a lot. <laughs> and I thought, well, I guess I do. And uh, so that's what we aspired to do. Zacek is a, uh, a Slovak name, as you know, but what you may not know is that it, it means little student, which is something that I've aspired to be all my life. Mm. Well, Zabinski is an old Polish name, and I have no (laughs) idea what it means. But it must mean something. Son of Zabin or something like that. Does Ski mean son of? I don't think so. I'm just kind of making that up, Frank. How about Taranjo? Uh, It's a French-Canadian name. It means people who lived in the Tours area of Mm. France, the Mm. Touraine area. And when they came to Canada, they were called the Taranjo, like the New Yorkers or the Bostonians or 
whatever. And I had to do some research to find out what historically my name actually was because that's a designation. It's not a name. Uh I met this old guy who was an old judge who researched French-Canadian history down in like Cahokia, Illinois, near St. Louis, where there's a big French-Canadian community. And evidently there was a family named Godin. There were two brothers, and one went by Godin and one went by Taranjo, because that's what the people called them. It was like the 1600s in Quebec, and there was an Indian attack, and the Godin brother was killed, and the Taranjo brother lived, and so that's the name that followed along in wow. my ancestry. Wow. So I'm sure you didn't need that detailed. I, I answer, love that detail, though. That's, that's more than the I know lore about my, of my name. name. I'd much rather it meant little student or something, so it'd be easier no, to talk great. about. <laughs> Dennis, you say something in your book, advice to artists in general, theater artists in particular, uh, directors and actors. You say, don't panic. Mm. Yeah. Can you expound on that a little bit without panicking? <laughs> I think it's something that I learned from my good friend Andre de Shields, and it has become my first rule of acting. I suppose it's my first rule of life. It's one of the things that we are inclined to do unless we have a different outlook. I guess one of the first images that comes to mind that might explain it was I remember when I was courting my wife, Marcel McVeigh. We were driving a long distance from the city, and being, you know, an urban boy, I was very worried because I didn't know where we were. And I said to her, in somewhat of a state of panic, I said, I'm lost. And she said to me, no, you're not lost. We're on an adventure. Uh Well, if I wasn't in love with her before then, I certainly was at that moment. That explains the whole thing. I mean, if you panic, the whole thing is going to go, you know, up in smoke. It's going to be a disaster. So it's not that you can avoid it, but you have to surmount it. I might say to an actor before they go on, stay hot, be cool, which is opposition. And the actor might say to me, I understand what you're saying, relax. I, I will say, I'm not just saying relax, I'm saying overcome your need to panic. I mean, when we have places, there's an inclination to panic. And that's fine. It's, it's understandable. It is uh, almost indicative of the fact that you're intelligent and that you understand what's at stake and that you're going out there without a net. But you need to surmount that. You need to cool that particular impulse. Otherwise, you can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, ever use that technique with your actors, Frank, I when you were directing? I was not aware of that technique, so no. <laughs> well, you probably I did, did though. I, I kind of did in my own way. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You talk about how you, you want them to feel sort of nervous and, and yeah. hyped up because you yeah. want them to care about doing a good job. But then you're right. If, if it overtakes them, then they're out there babbling. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of take that energy and use it on stage. Dennis, what's your least favorite trait in a human being? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I think it's the same that John Mahoney had. 
uh, stinginess. Mm. And I asked John, in what, in what way? He said, in any way. Stinginess with your time, stinginess with your talent, stinginess with your energy, stinginess with your love, stinginess with your commitment, stinginess with your generosity. Mm. It's, it's something that I, I don't particularly like in myself, and I do what I can to make sure I surmount it, and I certainly don't like it in others, and I do what I can to help them not be stingy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're appreciative of that. Well, I, perhaps in the long run. Yeah. Not yeah. immediately. No, maybe not in the short run, yeah. right? It's interesting because uh, John Mahoney was, in my memory, one of the most generous people I ever met. He walked the walk and talked the talk and lived the life. You know? mm. You're directing again. Yes. In I, your, I'm not retired. Not quite <laughs> retired. I, do, I select my projects. That's the nice thing about being retired. Isn't it? You choose Isn't it? what you want. When you start out in the business, um, at least for me, I had two concerns. One was, you know, am I going to be able to keep the wolf from the door? Am I going to be able to pay the rent? Am I going to be able to, you know, have a family? Am I going to be able to pay the bills? And the other uh, concern that I had was, am I going to be able to make a difference, you know, to make a statement, to, to uh, accomplish something? I'm not a rich man, but I, I no longer have those concerns financially. And at the risk of committing the sin of pride, I think, you know, I've accomplished some things. So I don't have those concerns, mm-hmm. and now I can uh, pursue the things that I really uh, want to do and need to do in a way. You're directing a very obscure piece in the <laughs> world canon of theater called yeah. Waiting for Godot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen a production of Waiting for Godot in a long time, Frank. Have I you? have not, no. This is being done in the upstairs space at Victory Gardens Theater right. at the Biograph. Richard Christensen Theater. Yeah. It's the Richard Christensen of, Theater. Yeah. But it is not a Victory Gardens production. Are, are you producing this piece yourself? You and your uh, wife, Marcy? Yeah, well, with our money, yes. <laughs> and with her, with her enormous help. Yeah. And I, I also got a, a bit of, substantial bit of help from Steve Miller, who is... Uh, president of the Victory Gardens Board. But it's, uh, it's not a vanity production, but it was a production that I, I felt I wanted to do now because who knows what the future will bring. You're in the middle of rehearsal right now. Yes, yeah. you have the day yeah. off today. Yes. When does this open? It opens November 17th. It previews November 15th, and it plays until December 15th. Short oh, run. The short run. At least a good month. Yeah, 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 definitely a month. Now, this is not the first time you've done Waiting for Godot. No, it isn't. You know, how did this come about in terms of my thought process? Well, uh, as I recall, I was in Key West where I spend the winters uh, directing and teaching. And I was reading a series of interviews by theater artists like John Gilgood and Harold Pinter and Tom Stoppard, and there were about 19 interviews, and 
after I finished the book, I realized that the play that was mentioned the most was Waiting for Godot. So I started thinking about it. And then I remember Galati, Frank Galati, allegedly, although he doesn't remember this, <laughs> at a party when he was in his cups, stopped the conversation by saying, let's face it, Waiting for Godot, the best play ever written. And nobody contradicted him. Nobody said, what? So that was in my mind. And then there was this young man at the time named Mike Saad, who was in the production uh, that I did at Loyola in the 70s. And he was in Chicago. And uh, he was, I know, uh, interested in playing the part again. So I thought about that, and then I thought, I'm not making this up, I was at uh, Chicago Shakespeare, and it was uh, an opening night for a production by uh, David Ives. And I never met David Ives, but I saw Chris Jones talking to this individual in the intermission, and the man was you know, dressed up, had a nice suit and a bow tie, and I thought, this is probably David Ives. So after the show, he was waiting for a drink, and I went up to him and I said, uh, excuse me, but my name is Dennis Ochik, and I'm artistic director emeritus of Victory Gardens Theater, and I just want to congratulate you on this evening's work. And he turned to me, and without a moment's hesitation, he said, I thought your production of Waiting for Godot was brilliant. <laughs> Now, this was, you know, decades wow. before. Wow. And it turns out that while I was a Ph.D. student at Northwestern, David Ives was an undergraduate in English. And uh, I was very fortunate at Northwestern in that I was directing shows alongside the faculty in the same season. And David came to see my shows. And then when I left Northwestern and went to Loyola, he came to see my shows there. So it, So you it, had this fan and you didn't yeah, even know about yeah. it. it. If the show was brilliant, it was brilliant in part because of Mike Saad. And uh, no pressure, Mike, you know. <laughs> and and uh, what, what role did Mike play? He played play? and will play Estragon. Mm-hmm. And we, at that time, I was in my early 30s, and he was in his early 20s at the, at the most. But somehow, we were able to make it work. And now, I'm in my late 70s, and Mike is in his late 60s. So, we're about the right age yeah, to do it again. Yeah. So we're going to give it another go. I hope it has the Zacek touch. Do you have, in rehearsing, do you think you found more insights than you had when you were at a yeah. younger age? Yeah, of course. Uh, all sorts of things, including the waning of powers, which you don't, you know, you don't really comprehend at all uh-huh. when you're in your 20s or your 30s. But as we get older, it's not simply death that we're concerned about. It's how our powers are not quite as strong as they used to be. Uh, also featuring 
our friend of the show and yeah. my close personal friend mm-hmm. and college colleague, mm-hmm. Larry Newman Jr. Larry Newman Jr. Playing Vladimir, I Yes, it. and he's a wonderful foil, or they both are foils for each other, Vladimir and Estragon. How much of good directing is good casting? Uh, the older I get, the higher the number is. When I, <laughs> when I first started out, I, I might have said like, you know, 50%. Now I say maybe 90, 95. Yeah. Really? It, it's that yeah. much? Yeah, because not only do you have to find the person that you think has the talent for the role, male or female, you have to find the actor with whom you can best communicate. Mm. Because if you cannot communicate with the actor, how are you going to then collectively affect an audience and communicate to an audience in the full sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the actor is your vehicle to communicate with the Absolutely. audience 100% pretty Absolutely. much. And so uh, it's really incredibly important. And you never know. You do it and you cast that person and you hope that it's the right choice. But time will tell. I remember being in a situation where I had uh, two actresses that I was casting for a show. They both happened to be African-American. And they were both about the same age, you know, both very good, similar background, similar weight, height, and so on. And ultimately, I had to cast one. And I cast a woman uh, who's a wonderful actress named Velma Austin. And after I cast her, she very quietly came up to me and said, you won't regret it. And you know what? That was so comforting for me. It was music to my ears. Sure. Because you're hoping that you made the right choice. And she made it clear to me that she was going the distance. And she did. And she did. And she has. You say something in your book that I'm just going to quote to you and ask you to expound on it a bit technique is there to reveal the soul it's something that sam ball said to me who was my um, scene design teacher although he never he doesn't remember saying it (laughs) (laughs) just like a lot he doesn't remember but he said it and um, you know there there are people for example um, in in every uh, art form you know whether it be a painter or a dancer or an actor or whatever, who may have great technique, but they don't know how to use it. I remember being at an audition once with my friend Jim Cordy, who is uh, artistic director at Paramount in Aurora. Mm. And there was uh, a number of dancers who were auditioning, and one particular dancer impressed me. And I said to, to Jim, I said, she has just fabulous technique. And he said, yeah, you're right, but she's no dancer. Oh. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, she doesn't know how to fly. She doesn't know how to take off. She doesn't know how to use it as a means to an end. The same thing can be said of some actors who have beautiful voices and have a certain ability at timing and, uh, 
you know, can project certain qualities, but may not have the ability to touch the human soul. I presume the same thing can be said of, of visual artists. Ab- any artist. Oh, yeah. Lots of yeah. people can paint a landscape. Absolutely. Um, but right. who can really touch your soul? Mm-hmm. That's right. You started out as an illustrator uh, I when did. you were young. You wanted to. Oh, wow. You wanted to be a visual artist. Yes. I don't know if I wanted to be, but I, I had a certain amount of ability. Yes. In that area, and uh, my teachers seemed to think so. But I had a problem because. I had difficulty working alone. I didn't know this at the time, but I realized that some days it would be very difficult for me to work, and either I would force myself to do it or I would feel very guilty because I didn't do it. So it was years later that I realized that I was an artist, but I was a communal artist, and I needed to work with others. Collaboration. Yeah. Collaboration mm-hmm. is key to it. I needed to to be um, in the company of others to create something. Let's go back to your early days in childhood, mm-hmm. Dennis. W- what did you used to pretend as a child? Well, I think there's something that became clear to me in time. I was very protected by my parents. And, and as you know, I, I grew up in the inner city where it was very dangerous and, and still is. My parents were very loving, but they were very concerned about me. So they pretty much uh, required me to stay within the confines of our yard, uh, which was behind the house. I was not for many years... Uh, allowed to go out and wander the streets. I had friends who would come to visit me, and without them knowing it, the deal was that they could come into the yard and visit me and we could play, but I was not allowed to go out with them. So uh, I'm sure that I created a a theatrical world. Mm. Sure. And that I did my the best. The had to be everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I did my best to uh, entertain them, to engage them. To enlighten them. To hopefully <laughs> to enlighten them, yeah. maybe even have a moment of ecstasy uh-huh. with them. Maybe so. So that they would not leave too soon. People say that for some, life is a tragedy. For others, it's a comedy. Yeah. You explore this a little bit in your book. How do you look at it? What is it for you? Oh, I look at it as a comedy. I mean, I, I, do, I do my very best to avoid extended periods of real emotion. I mean, I know them. I certainly know what it is to be uh, angry, what it is to be afraid, what it is to be melancholy. But I would prefer to uh, be amused. Oh, yeah. If you have the choice, why not? Yeah, I mean, you know, and you can take anything in life, anything, and you can either feel sorry for yourself and get into the emotion, or you can look at it through through the standpoint of humor. I did a play once called Chekhov in Yalta, and I played Chekhov. My friend Larry McCauley played Stanislavski, and as you may know, there was a there was always this difficulty in terms of communication between the two men 
even though Stanislavski helped make Chekhov extremely successful and vice versa. And in the play, as Chekhov, I said to Constantine, I said, but Constantine, you don't seem to understand I write comedies. And Macaulay, as Stanislavski said, then why don't people laugh? <laughs> and my response as Chekhov was, because you make them cry. So, I mean, the comedy's there, as well as the tragedy. It's a question of which road the director is going to go down when he does Chekhov. Are you approaching Waiting for Godot as the comedy that it is sometimes touted as? I, I suppose so, but I'm not... I'm not saying anything like, you know, hold for laughs or this is a great moment or this is a wonderful piece of business. Basically, my attitude while directing a lot of plays, but particularly this one, is God forbid they should laugh. Mm. I mean, if you find it funny, Mm -hmm. be my guest. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there are certain sections which are quite poignant that... I don't think will be amusing at all. On the other hand, uh, a great deal of the play is amusing, I think. And you never know what an audience is going to do. That's right. I directed a production of Dames at Sea, if you know that show, Take Off of the 30s musical. Opening night, audiences in the aisles dying of laughter. I mean, it it went over great. The next night, no laughs. And I went backstage at an intermission. The students like, what's wrong? No one's laughing. It was an older crowd. They were sitting there sort of with tears in their eyes. They took it absolutely straight. Yeah. And they were having a great time. But to them, it wasn't funny. It was like a real story about this woman. And she goes to Broadway. Right. And she makes it and all that. So you never know. You and, never know. And, and you direct it straight. You can't no, direct, direct for like huge yucks because yeah, then it's wrong. You direct it honestly. Honestly, hopefully, yeah. And hopefully. if they laugh, they laugh. And ultimately, it's a matter of values and level of comprehension for an audience. Mm-hmm. And the the second show was as successful as the first. It's just that they had a different view of it. They did. Yeah. It was yeah. what they brought to it, what the right. audience brought to it. And I could see that because I was in the audience. The cast was like, what are we doing wrong? Right. But, but, but they were looking for something. Well, because they had had it the night before. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And mm-hmm. it's enticing, but it's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Laughter is not guaranteed. Correct. What is uh, important is that you keep, as an actor, you keep your appointment and you give it your best shot. Right. It's the same thing as an artistic director. Mm-hmm. Somebody say to me, how did you do it for 34 years? Well, I didn't do it for 34 years. I did it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. I kept my appointments and I gave it my best shot. And you know what? That's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. If you can do that every day, that's a lot. In any business. You know, right. It's true. Well, Booth One is focused on giving the Chicago theater community a forum for telling their stories and sharing their passions. In fact, we are one of the very few outlets, Frank, for that process. It's true. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and popular culture and amazing guests like Dr. Zacek, you can go to our website at www. Why do I always say the www? Um, I don't, well, I don't know. You probably don't have to anymore. You well, used to have to. Well, type in whatever you want to type in, but then type in <laughs> booth-one.com. That's booth-one, Frank.com. And click on the donate button. It's easy, it's quick, and it's tax deductible under our 501c 
status as a nonprofit entity. You know something about that, Dennis. <laughs> I do indeed. Many, many years. Really? Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. You said something just a moment ago about giving it your best shot. You talk about auditioning in your book, The Zotcheck Tapes, yeah. and that the really only advice to give an actor going into an audition is give it your best shot. Give it your best shot. I'm sure I mentioned the story. Um, Judith Ivey, before she was Judith Ivey, used to audition in Chicago. And I, I and a number of directors thought she was the best person ever to audition in the city. And I asked her what her secret was. And she said, well, I'll tell you, but it, it's not that complex. She said, I would, I would do the audition, and then I would hear what the director said. And, you know, maybe she was doing a pinter piece, and the director would say, I need to have more of an English accent. I need you to move through space, and I need to have you pay attention to these two pauses and this silence. Now, if you do the accent, you move through space, and you pay attention to these two pauses and this silence, what that means is you can take direction. So you want to do that, and then you want to do it again, but slightly differently, so that you're not locked, so that there's another possible take on how it can be done and still remain in the arena of truth. I remember years ago, I was in a community theater and um, there was this guy who was sort of a fixture, talented, but he, you know, he had, he had a difficulty and, and he did an audition and I knew it was set, it was set. That was what I was gonna get. And I said, I, w I would like you to do it again and I want you to change something. And he said, what? And I said, anything. <laughs> And it didn't happen. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, what he was doing was fine, but there was no, there was no advancement. There was no... That's as far as he was going to go. That was it. Mm -hmm. That was what you were going to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, Interesting. Did, you didn't cast him. I didn't. And um, I'm sure it was hard on him, but it was for the best. It was for the good of the show. Victory Gardens is possibly the premier playwriting theater in the world. Yes. Well, without question, certainly in yeah. this country, because of its emphasis on the playwriting ensemble, the playwright ensemble. Right. So you've done a lot of new works, a lot of world premieres. Do you enjoy working on world premieres as much as you do on the tried and true material of the theatrical canon? I do. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that the current uh, artistic director is a man named Che Yu, mm -hmm. who does it slightly differently, as he should, because he's not me. But he still has an ensemble. He's still working uh, on diversity, and he's still carrying on the tradition. Uh, so I just want to make it clear that Victory Gardens is still alive and well under his leadership. Yeah, I enjoy them both. I remember... Uh, years ago, way before I was artistic director, I was working on a world premiere. I was uh, 
I was the king of the room. I was uh, the one that everybody looked to for the answers. And then one day, this guy who was the playwright showed up. Oh, <laughs> oh how dare he? Yeah. <laughs> and he had a slightly different take on things, you know? Mm-hmm. And at first, I was like surprised and probably, you know, maybe even a little threatened. I don't know, but it was a surprise. But then I realized, hey, wait a minute. This is pretty good. This guy, <laughs> this guy has another way of viewing what I'm working on, and we can collaborate. With all the ensemble members, I would say, you have to be available for auditioning because you have to know who I'm casting. And I might cast a perfectly good actor who may not have a certain quality mm-hmm. that you know about, but I have yet to discover. And then I would say, and you, you know, I want you as, at as many rehearsals as possible. And you know, I would have people who say, Oh, it's so painful for me. I would say, well, I, you know, it's not easy for me either, but I want you to be there. You can, you know, behind me, you can lie on the floor, you can even take a nap, but if I need to ask you a question, you have to be present. Mm-hmm. So they have to be part of the process. And it's more joyful for me when they're there. On the other hand, you know, Beckett's no longer alive, and I just, I, I just do my best to present the piece the way I think he would like to have it presented. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, put my imprimatur on it. I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is make his work come alive. Well, Dennis, we finish our podcasts each week with a segment that I call The Kiss of Death. Ah, we're back to that title. We are, by popular demand. Uh, Good, good, yeah. And it's really just a celebration of someone that we've recently lost. Oh, yeah. Could be famous, not so famous, show business, not so much in show business. Today I'd like to talk about someone who was a, well, an American icon, Jesse Norman. Did you ever have a desire to direct opera, Dennis? I I never did, although... um, my friend, uh, the playwright, Steve Carter, would always be encouraging me. But I, I never felt, uh, you know, this burning desire. Well, Jesse Norman, the majestic American soprano who brought a sumptuous, shimmering voice to a broad range of roles at the Metropolitan Opera and other houses around the world. Ms. Norman was one of the most decorated of American singers. Mm-hmm. She won five Grammy Awards, four for her recordings, and one for Lifetime Achievement. She received the prestigious Kennedy Center Honors in 1997 and the National Medal of Arts in 2009. Her career began in the late 1960s. She went on to sing more than 80 performances at the Met. A keen interpreter as well as a magnificent singer, Miss Norman had a distinctly opulent tone that sounded effortless, never pushed. Mm -hmm. In a review of a 1992 recital, Edward Rothstein of the New York Times likened her voice to, quote, a grand mansion of sound. Oh, wow. I'd like to get a review like that. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty good. It defines an extraordinary space, he wrote. As an African-American, she credited other black singers with paving the way for her, including Marian Anderson, Dorothy Maynor, and Leontine Price, among mm-hmm. others. They have made it possible for me to say, I will sing French opera, she said, or I will sing German opera, instead of being told, you will sing Porgy and Bess. 
Uh-huh. Look, it's unrealistic to pretend that racial prejudice doesn't exist, she goes on. It does. It's one thing to have a set of laws and quite another to change the hearts and minds of men. That takes longer. I do not consider my blackness a problem. I think it looks rather nice. Oh. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Ms. Norman was born into a musical family in 1945 in Augusta, Georgia, home of the Masters. Oh, right. Golf tournament. Yeah, yeah. Growing up there in a segregated but close-knit world, she began listening to opera on the radio as a child. I remember thinking that opera stories were not very different from other stories. Well, true. Yeah. A lot of times they're based on other stories, too. It's great storytelling. Yeah. A boy meets a girl. They fall in love. They cannot be together for some reason, and most of the time it does not end happily ever after. Well, you got to have that big final number. For me, opera stories were grown-up versions of stories that were familiar to me already. She earned a bachelor's degree in music from Howard University and studied at the University of Michigan and the Peabody Institute. Her career received its first big boost when she won first place prize at the Munich International Music Competition in 1968. The next year, she made her debut on an opera stage at the Deutsche Oper Berlin in Wagner's Tannhauser. She quickly became one of the busiest opera divas on the scene, a fixture of galas and benefits. She also ranged backward in time to the Baroque, displaying a remarkable command of a broad range of styles. She was famous for saying, I think you'll like this, Dennis, pigeonholes are for pigeons. Ah, I like it a lot. (laughs) In a sign of her international stature, Miss Norman was tapped to sing La Marseille in Paris on the 200th anniversary of Bastille Day, which she did in dramatic fashion, wearing a grand tricolor gown. She also sang at the second inaugurations of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Mm. She became a major recording artist at the dawn of the compact disc era, leaving a rich catalog of opera, leader, spirituals, and recitals. In person, she cut an imposing figure, dressed dramatically and speaking with a diva's perfect diction. When she entered a room, heads turned. In 2003, Ms. Norman and the Rachel Longstreet Foundation created the Jesse Norman School of the Arts, a free after-school arts program in her native Augusta. In her memoir, Ms. Norman recalled one of her earliest stabs at singing opera in front of an audience. She was a junior in high school when, at a teacher's urging, she performed the aria My Heart at Thy Sweet Voice from St. Sons, Samson, and Delilah. Mm. She had been singing it in English at church functions and supermarket openings but for the <laughs> school performance. Yes. Hey, Jesse Norman just sang <laughs> at the, the IGA. Yeah. the A&P. <laughs> But for the school performance, her teacher had her learn it in its original French. Mm. She said, I do think that if you can stand up and sing in French in front of an assembly full of middle schoolers, <laughs> then you can do just about anything. I would agree with that. Jesse Norman, Regal American Soprano, was 74. Well, Dennis, Dr. Z, it's been a pleasure to have Absolutely. you here. Absolutely. I hope you feel better, and I hope things I go will. very well with Waiting for Godot. Larry Bless Newman, your heart. Larry Newman Jr. isn't giving you any major problems, is no. he? Because I'll kick his butt. <laughs> no, he, he's. <laughs> I know where he no, lives. He's a great guy. Yes. And a wonderful actor. He is. Good, he yeah. is. Visit booth-one.com. Got it. Or, or you can type in www first. If you want to do the W's, yeah. For prior episodes and more information about our program for Booth One and Dennis Zacek, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. Mm-hmm.